I want you to open your Bibles this evening to the Gospel of John, the 19th chapter. That's where we're going to be looking at today. And as we, as we begin the service and as we make our way through it, we're talking about finished things. But it's important that we understand finished things. And the best way to consider finished things is to consider unfinished things. And so I did a little research on unfinished things, and this is what I found out. I don't know if you know it. I certainly didn't know it. There's a portrait, a picture uh, on the dollar bill. Our first president, George Washington. Here he is. Martha Washington in 1796 hired a guy named Frank Stewart to paint a portrait of the two of them together. He never finished the painting, and he realized I could make more money by taking this, making copies, and selling them for $100 a piece. And that's what he did. They never, he never finished it. The reason it's in a circle is because they had to cut off a lot of the stuff that wasn't finished. And so it's unfinished. Now, here's the thing about it. It doesn't change the world, the fact that it's unfinished. Or if it would have been finished, it wouldn't have changed the dollar bill. They wouldn't have put him on a five because it's finished. It doesn't change anything, but it's unfinished. I also found out that there's a book, uh, one of the greatest literary works in all of history is a book called The Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer. Now, uh, Chaucer, who is a renowned author, he wrote this book and he never finished it. He wrote for 10 years, he never finished it. He launched into this book and it was a tale of travelers. And each traveler, 30 of them, were supposed to tell four different stories a total of 120 stories was to make up this amazing literary work. But he ran out of time. He died. 24 stories is all you find. Yet it's considered his magnus opus, the greatest uh, book that he ever wrote. Unfinished. Once again, had he had 120 stories in there, it wouldn't have changed the value of the book. It wouldn't have changed his reputation. But it was unfinished business. The third one I learned about, which I thought was interesting, is this, uh, the Cincinnati subway. Uh, in the early 1900s, before World War II, um, they wanted to take the streetcars off the street in uh, the metropolis of Cincinnati. So they began a subway project, and they got about six miles into it. They had spent millions of dollars, and the war, because the war had used so much of the raw materials, the price to build the subway went up. They never finished the subway. Currently, it's used for storage and fiber optics cables uh, traveling through the city. Lastly, and certainly fitting for Good Friday, is this one. This is known as uh, The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. When we see it, we think it's a completed work. It was never completed. In fact, when you look at this picture, if you notice the ceiling or the roof, it's like a coffered ceiling. Da Vinci never put that on there. In fact, today, the mural that he painted still has no ceiling. But in the 1700s or the early 1900s, they, they went through and refurbished it. And so when you see a print, it has a ceiling. Now listen, whether the Last Supper painting by Da Vinci has a ceiling, whether uh, Chaucer's book has 120 stories or 24 stories, whether there's a subway that's finished or unfinished, uh, no matter any of these, they, they don't, it, it, it doesn't affect either way our eternal condition. It doesn't change anything in the past. It doesn't really change anything now and it certainly doesn't change anything in the future now sometimes we have unfinished projects in our own life 
Uh, let me give you an example. Does anybody in here have an old car, an old truck, or an old boat, or an old um, motorcycle that you've been talking about fixing up for about 28 years, okay? I had one. I had a 66 Mustang convertible, and I finally sold it in boxes, okay? Now, we've got un we, maybe we have an old chair or our grandmother's dresser, and it's never been refurbished. An antique, it's something that needs to be done, but it is unfinished business. Well, I want to talk tonight about an event that is a finished event, something that was started and came to a grand and glorious conclusion, a finished work that reaches back in all of eternal time, connects intimately to this very moment that we're in, and reaches forward and changes the trajectory of all of eternity. And this, this finished work is the finished work of Jesus Christ. Often when Easter comes and we read the Christmas story, it means something to us because Jesus is our rescuer and our redeemer. But sometimes we forget the magnitude of what it is that Jesus did for us. And just like the video showed, we're going to look tonight about the brutality of what it is that Jesus did for you. Tell the person next to you, Jesus did what he did for you. Tell the person on your other side, he finished the work. Now, here's the beauty of that. Sometimes there are religions out there or belief systems out there that require you to do something to merit what Jesus has already done. I want you to understand something. What we're going to see tonight is a finished work. You can add absolutely nothing to the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. You can't read enough scripture. You can't pray hard enough. You can't do enough good deeds. You can't be sinless enough. What Jesus did was enough and it was finished. Everything you'd ever need. Now, I'm going to read bits of John 19 and then we're going to kind of trace them and we're going to determine what is so good about Good Friday. It begins in John chapter 19 verse 1. It says this, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged severely. The soldiers braided a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and they clothed him in a purple robe and they came up to him again and again and said, Hail, King of Jews. And they struck him repeatedly on the face. Moving down to verse 17, <clears throat> they took Jesus <clears throat> and carrying his own cross, he went out to the place called the place of the skull, also called Golgotha. Verse 18, there they crucified him along with two others, one on each side with Jesus in the middle. So when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing there, he said to his mother, woman, look, here's your son. Then he said to his disciple, look, here's your mother. From that very time, the disciple took her into his own home. Verse 28, after this, Jesus realizing that by this time, everything was completed he said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was there, so they put a sponge soaked in sour wine on a branch of hyssop, and they lifted it to his mouth. When he had received the sour wine, Jesus said, it is completed. Your translation may say, it is finished. Then he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Verse 32, so the soldiers now came and broke the legs of the two men who had been crucified with Jesus, first the one and then the other. But when they, had, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, 
they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced the side with a spear and blood and water flowed out immediately. Verse 38, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple of Jesus, asked Pilate if he could remove the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he went and took the body away. Nicodemus, the man who had previously come to Jesus at night, he accompanied Joseph carrying a mixture of myrrh and aloes weighing about 75 pounds. Then they took Jesus's body and they wrapped it with an aromatic spices in strips of linen cloth, according to Jewish burial customs. Now at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden was a new tomb and there were no one where no one had yet been buried. And so because it was the Jewish day of preparation and the tomb was nearby, they placed Jesus's body there. This is an account of the finished work of Jesus Christ for you and for me. Now let's unpack it. Let's track it a little bit chronologically. Let's highlight what happens on this night and, and, and determine why Good Friday is good. So, Jesus has had the Lord's Supper, the last supper, like da Vinci painted, unfinished. He had the last supper with his disciples, and then he encouraged his disciples to go with him to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. Now we read the story, we find out that they're sleeping, he's praying in anguish. In fact, scripture tells us that Jesus was anguished in prayer over what he knew the next part of his life included. He was in so much anguish, scripture says, that the sweat fell from his body like drops of blood. Now that is not just an analogy. It is really what happened. You see, there is a word in the medical field called hematidrosis. And it's where there's so much anguish and on the inside of the body, the capillaries begin to change and the blood begins to seep through the walls of the capillaries and through the skin and blood can actually fall from through your skin because of the anguish. Now, secondly, I want you to, to notice that Jesus then was betrayed while in the garden by one of his own, one that he had washed his feet, one that he had dined with, one that he had loved on, one that he had encouraged. His name would be Judas Iscariot. Judas had already made a provision to receive wealth to uh, turn Jesus over to the authorities. Thirdly, I want you to remember, Jesus was falsely accused and he was tried in a court system that was corrupt. Multiple times, all night long, Jesus stood to defend himself by himself before the crooked authorities. Number four, Jesus was sentenced to be scourged or beaten. Uh, 39 lashes would be the sentence on Jesus, as was Roman custom. This was the first half of what Rome had determined to be the greatest form of torture possible. The first half would be scourging. The second half would be crucifixion upon a cross. Now, the the Roman soldiers knew how to do this. They were trained professionals at causing agony on a human body to generate suffering, yet not to the point of death. So they took Jesus and they strapped Jesus's naked 
body. Naked from the neck to the joints and the knees, they strapped him to a whipping post. And then trained professionals would take the whip called the cat of nine tails. It would be a wooden handle with a leather strap and nine smaller straps on the end. These smaller straps would be weighted with lead to increase velocity and impact. On the tips of these nine tails of this whip would be fragments uh, or shards of glass, stone, and metal, guaranteed to rip the flesh open and expose often the organs on the inside. Every tip of the cat of nine tails would generate a wound that would, in, in our day, would require 20 stitches to repair. So after 39 lashes with nine tips of these cats of nine tails beating and flogging his back, to repair his body would require 2,000 approximately stitches on the backside of God's beloved son. Number five, now they take Jesus and they take a crown made of thorns. The thorns would be an inch and a half to two inches long. And they made a crown and they pressed it into his brow, generating more pain, causing more bloodshed. Number six, they began to beat Jesus on the face repeatedly until his face was bloody and bruised. No doubt his eyes and his lips were swollen. Number seven, now after he's been beaten and crowned and punched, they take the, the, the cross member of a, 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 a hand-hewn wooden timber that would weigh approximately 75 to 100 pounds and they put it on his wounded, bleeding back and he would carry that cross to Calvary. Number eight, the crucifixion now, the second half of the torment, the, 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 the second half of the, the brutal uh, death of Jesus would happen. The Romans knew how to crucify. The, the Romans knew how to get, keep somebody alive so that they could suffer and be shamed to the absolute most possible. They understood that they could take six inch to nine inch spikes and either drive it in the ulna, in, in the wrist, or between the bones in the hands. And their hands would support their body for an extended period of time on a cross. They would take the same size spike, cross the feet, drive it in between the bones of the feet or in the ankle, and there this person would hang. They, they impaled Jesus on this rough cross. They stood the cross up, and with a thud, the cross would land in the bottom of the hole, which would hold the cross and his body in the upright position. The intention was simple. Slow death, pain, and shame. And they knew how to do it well. <clears throat> Every breath that the person on the cross needed to breathe would require pressure placed on the feet and pulling on the hands, sliding a whipped back across a wooden timber just to get another breath. The, vo the words that could come out and be spoken by someone who's being crucified was limited. That's why when you read the scripture, Jesus says a few statements and all of his statements are short statements, very few words because it was so difficult. Now, to expedite the death, because it's getting near the end of the day and they can't have living people on the Passover <clears throat> hanging on the cross, 
The soldiers would come with a sledgehammer or a mallet and they would break the knees of the man or the woman hanging on the cross. This is so their body would drop. They could no longer use their legs to push up for another breath. And so it would speed up the process. Yet when they got to Jesus, they noticed Jesus was already dead. Jesus had already given his spirit away. They didn't kill Jesus. Let me answer that question. Rome did not kill Jesus. The disciples did not kill Jesus. The religious system did not kill Jesus. God the Father killed his son upon a cross. You see, Jesus decided when it was finished. And Jesus had already said, it is finished. Jesus had already given up his spirit. Jesus had already died. So to be sure, the soldier comes and he stabbed a spear through the rib cage, through the lung, into the pericardial sac around the heart, and water and blood spewed forth from this dead body. But no bones were broken because scripture, prophecy of the Old Testament said he would suffer and he would die, but no bones would be broken. Jesus endured it all. He was coherent until the very end, until he gave up his life. Now, he died because of one of the last things that he said. And in this one of the last things he said, found only in the Gospel of John, is why Good Friday for me is good. And why Good Friday for you can be good. You see, in this last phrase that he gave, he said, it is finished. It is completed. Now that phrase in English is is determined from transferring the Greek language. The Greek language uses a word that's very specific. It's called tetelestai. Tetelestai is a word that means, it comes from the root verb teleo, which means to bring to an end, to complete and to accomplish. Now, it's a, it's a critical word. It's a significant word because everything Jesus intended to do, Jesus had now done. That's good about Jesus. Everything Jesus ever says he's going to do, he does. Jesus says he's coming back one day. Guess what? He will. Jesus finishes what he says he is going to do. Now, this word would be a common, familiar word to someone who understood the language of that day called koine or common Greek. <clears throat> if you climbed Mount Everest, you would say, to telestai, it's accomplished, it's finished. If you, if you turn in your final copy of your dissertation on your doctorate, you would say, to telestai, it is finished. If you make a final payment on your mortgage, you would say, to tell us die. If you cross the finish line on your first 10K run, you would say, to tell us die. When a servant finishes his commanded task, he would say, boss, to tell us die. When an artist makes his final stroke on a masterpiece or a painting, he would say, to tell us die. It means simply, it is finished. It is completed. Now, there's more to it than that. It, it, Jesus was not saying, Jesus was not saying, I am finished. Jesus said, 
it is finished. You see, in part, although Jesus is eternal with God, his work for you and for me was just getting started. You see, when we keep reading scripture, we realize that Jesus, after revealing himself, we'll talk about on Sunday, after revealing himself to many, he mounts on a cloud and he goes back to heaven and he says, I am going to prepare a place for you. See, part of his work was finished, but he was just getting started on the rest of it. To tell us die is used in, this, in John chapter 19 in what is called in the Greek the perfect tense. Now, I'm not going to bore you with a lot of that stuff, but it's important to understand the value of this word in that tense. What Jesus said from the cross is this, I have finished everything in, in eternity past that I needed to finish. And it's present tense. I am finishing what needs to happen in your life right now. And I will be finishing this work for all of eternity in the future. Past, present, and future, Jesus said, it's finished. And that's good news, amen? Now, <clears throat> he did not say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. This was not a martyr's cry of defeat. This was not a confession. Whoo, it's over. This is a statement of victory. And the statement of victory is not on the behalf of his, uh, his incarnation, his flesh body. It was destroyed. The victory was for you. The victory is on behalf of those who would place themselves under his sacrificial death on a cross. Everything Jesus came to earth to do was now finished. Everything written in prophecies of the Old Testament, 300 times strong, they were finished. Everything needed to reveal the character, the holiness, and the nature of God the Father, it was finished. Everything required by law to pay the sin debt of the world, it was finished. Every debt for redemption was finished. It is finished. <clears throat> the great purpose of God in all the history of mankind was now finished. In that finished work, on that first Good Friday, about 2,000 years ago, there was a stake driven in the ground that looked like a cross with a man hanging on it. And it is to that cross, to that stake, to that moment in time that you and I and every human being who would ever choose to do this can tether ourselves to it and know that our sin is forgiven, to know that our redemption is made, to know that our sin debt is paid, to know that we have been forgiven and we have been made right with God because of the right sacrifice of Jesus on Good Friday. Now, why would something so brutal, something so harsh, something so incredibly difficult to learn of, why would that be recorded in God's word? Why do you have that today? Why, why are we talking about it today? John chapter 20, verse 31 says this. These 
things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The reason Jesus did what he did, the reason that the Holy Spirit inspired John to record it is not simply a historical lesson. It is so you and I can know with certainty that Jesus finished the work that we needed to do ourselves, but we couldn't. See, Jesus paid a debt we couldn't pay. Jesus, we have a debt that Jesus didn't owe, and Jesus did that for you. Now, here's the question. It's Good Friday. It's not good because of the details of Jesus' crucifixion. It's good because the details of Jesus' crucifixion lead to the finished product. And the finished product is redemption. And the question is this. Good Friday, 2023, has the gift of Jesus been applied to your life? I know you didn't come for that probably, but it's a good question. Has what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, has it been applied to my broken life? Not a knowledge of it, but has, has his finished work began a finished work in you? I want to show you one other scripture and we'll be almost finished. Philippians 1.6 says this. I am sure of this very thing, that the one who began a good work in you, he will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That word perfected, it comes from the same root word, toleo. Now, I want you just to bow your heads for just a second. And in this moment, in the quietness of this room, a person can never choose when they are born again. A person can't ever choose to fabricate a moment when they receive this finished grace gift of Jesus into our life. Scripture says that happens when the Holy Spirit woos us or invites us or beckons or calls us into God's forever family. And maybe in this very moment, You've heard about Jesus' finished work in a different way. You didn't hear it with your head. You heard it in your heart. Maybe it is in this moment you feel uneasy or restless or confused or broken or shameful. I want you to know that didn't come from me. That's the Holy Spirit working in your life and in your heart. And in this very moment, maybe you feel like you need to receive Jesus' finished work into your life. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're here this evening 
and you need to receive Jesus' finished work in your life, would you simply raise your hand so I can pray for you? Amen. You can put your hand down. Amen. Amen. Anybody else? This is your day that you feel God. Amen. In the back, you can put your hand down. Anybody else that feels like this is the day that God is inviting you into his forever family? Just slip your hand up. Amen. Now, for those of, the, of you that raised your hand, this is your moment. How do you respond to that? It's really simple. You simply say, God, I hear you calling me. I cannot believe that you would invite somebody like me into your forever family. But God, I thank you that you are. God, I thank you that I can't fix me, but Jesus finished the work to fix me from the inside out. So right now, I repent. I change my mind and my direction about my life. I want to live differently. I want Jesus and his finished work to come into my life. I want your Holy Spirit to live in me and to help me live for you from this day forward. I thank you for hearing my prayer. I thank you for the finished work upon a cross. I thank you for saving me tonight. I pray it in Jesus' name. And for all of the rest of us, this is the moment where we are reminded of the magnitude of the finished work of Jesus on a cross. God demonstrated his love for you and for me in that while we were still sinners, he died for us. God, I thank you for this time together. I thank you for these that have gathered. I thank you for those who raised their hands, God. I pray that the decision that they made will, will reveal itself in tangible ways in their life. God, I pray that they will take the next step, that they'll reach out and make it public, tell their friends and their family. I pray that they'll reach out to me, to the one of the pastors, and, and confess what Jesus has done in their life tonight. God, I pray that they'll take the next step of believers' obedience and be baptized to be more like Jesus. And we'll give you the praise for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you raised your hand tonight and you pray, or maybe you didn't raise your hand, but you prayed the prayer to receive Christ into your life, would you let somebody know? Let one of us know. We'd, we'd be delighted to learn of it and to encourage you in the greatest decision that you've ever made in your life. Now, on the night that Jesus was betrayed... In Scripture, we read that Jesus had supper with his disciples. And I want to invite our deacons to go ahead and come forward and find your place. We want to remember well what it is that Jesus has done for us. And so the way we do that in Scripture is called an ordinance. There's only a couple of them in the Bible, baptism and communion or the Lord's table. 
And so we're going to do that tonight. And, and you're maybe a guest tonight, and I want to let you know, maybe you go to another church. If you're a believer, this is for you. It's a time for you to remember. Now, why is it only for believers? <laughs> because if Jesus hasn't saved you, you ain't got nothing to remember okay? And so communion is a time to remember. And if you just got saved tonight, let me just tell you, this is a glorious moment that you get to take communion along with other believers and you get to remember what Jesus has done. Now, let me give you some really easy instructions on how we do communion. You may have been in a church where they passed a plate around. COVID did away with our plate passing. And so, so we do something different. And we like it. You have the opportunity to take a stand and walk to the front of the church, receive your communion, and simply go back to your seat. Now, the way this, is, this works, pay close attention. I want each section to exit on your left. Come around, get your communion, go back, and go back to your seat. If you, that makes a little bit of sense, shake your head yes. Half of you is good enough for me. Somebody will follow the leader. It's all on you and you, Tara, right here. Pressure's on right here, Clark. Okay. <laughs> right, Josie, you got to lead the pack. Well, you just follow the one in the front. Now, Scripture says that in 1 Corinthians, Paul warns, he says, be sure that your heart is pure before you take communion. He said, because you've taken it wrongfully with impure motives, uh, some of you are sick and some are, of you are dying. We don't want that. So you have the opportunity in the next few minutes while you get your cup and your bread and return to your seat to pray that God will just purify your heart. Now to help you remember what Jesus has done for us, Scripture tells us that before they took their supper together, they prayed. So join me as we pray. Uh, Father, we just thank you so much that you love us that much. We thank you, God, that Jesus didn't leave any stone unturned. He didn't leave any business undone. It's finished. He completed everything you sent him here to do. And God, now he's at your side, and we look forward to Sunday morning when we get to celebrate the rest of the story. But God, it is in this moment that we just want to pause and say thank you God, we pray that as we take this communion tonight, the bread and the juice, that it just serves to remind us that you gave the very best you have as a sacrifice for our sin. And we want to say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Verse 23 says, the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Scripture continues in verse 25. It says, in the same way, Jesus took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
Scripture continues in verse 26, and it says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's finished. Amen? Amen. Everybody say, it is finished. We hope that God spoke to you through this message. If you enjoyed the message, be sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast and visit our website at sturkey.church to find all the latest information and upcoming events. Be sure to join us again next week. Until then, may God bless you.